0: Whatcha, this is Andrew Goldham. More than happy to be with you this fine day. Because it better be. Look at the alternative. Here on Sounds and Vision. Second part of my chat with Mr. Elliot Easton of the Cars. We did cut this show a while ago. Well, I recently flew from Vancouver to back to Bogota via Los Angeles and decided that I would stay out in Malibu and Zuma. It's a tough life and I wouldn't go into town. Please, Sharon Osborne will forgive me, you know. <laughs> I dreamt about Sharon Rossi the other night. It was very interesting. It was almost as dull as Argo, although I do like that Maybe when he stops playing alcoholics, we'll know that he's managed to beat most of the demons, which I hope that um, getting back together with J-Lo, because Latin woman, don't put up with no shit, Ben. You should know that. That is who he's with, J-Lo. Yeah, you got to run your house properly. And I hope in the years, man, you know, I mean, there comes a day, Ben, when as you walk through all the airports of the world, even if they're private, The bottles in the bar stop calling your name. And that is a wonderful moment for a ongoing working alcoholic. Anyway, Elliot, I was out at Zuma and I wasn't going into L.A., but fortunately he's just a cut across the valley. What a traipse that is, dear. You know, over to that great 101 or whatever it is, where I've got memories of knowing that Johnny Carson used to drive on that road to go and do the Tonight Show. Because the Tonight Show, for all of you over 50, might be an important part of your heritage. (laughs) It's better than Chuck Connors in (laughs) whatever he was in. Anyway, I got together with Elliot. We went to a deli, so everything's okay. Uh, We got wonderful service, we got wonderful food, and we got the wonderful each other. And now, let's have some more wonderfulness with part two of my convo with Mr. Elliot The Clearwater thing. Now, here you're running into, if I can just purge on a little more. Yeah, sure. That's got to be like doing Shakespeare.
1: It was a very cool thing. It's a funny thing with me. I feel like I'm almost like caught between two generations of rock music because most of my friends and most of the people I've worked with through the years have always been older than me. And it's not because I've done a lot of homework or anything like that. I actually was there only young. I'll give you an example. At 14, I worked tirelessly for Gene McCarthy and Howard Lowenstein to end the war in Vietnam. I took a bus at 14 years old. How many kids would take a bus by themselves from Long Island to Washington, D.C. to go to the Poor People's March in 68 and stand there at Resurrection City with everybody? I was 14 years old. So, you know, I'm going to the Newport Folk Festival and having a jug band like Jim Questkin when I was 12. I relate more to your guys than... My guys, because they all think like it begins and ends with Clapton, Beck and Page. And that's like not even a thing for me. And the Rolling Stones had a lot to do with this, what I call musical archaeology. And when I would read someone's influences, I'd immediately go and find those records of where someone else got it from. And so joining a band like Creedence was great for me because I knew that I I liked the Screaming Jay Hawkins, Suzy Q, just as well as I liked theirs. And I knew where they were coming from. so on and so on. I mean, I put a spell on you, not Susie Q, Dale Q. Right. Oh, two Hawkins, Screaming Jay and Dale. And,
0: and yeah, there you go. But I, uh, to me, it was like an end game, not end game, but, you know, I mean, after the first game, opportunity. I mean, very often with bands, or on enough occasions, I've said to bands, all right, listen, all very good. Why don't you go off and play Hall of Notes for a month? I did that too. Did you?
1: I did. I toured oh. with Hall & Oates for a while. No, but
0: you're doing it then. I'm saying to a band at the time of Hall & Oates and say, go and just play Hall & Just get under the skin of this for a while. Then it might help you find out who you could be.
1: One of the greatest things about playing in, in Creedence was being backed by one of those rhythm sections like Duck Dunn and Al Jackson or Benny Benjamin and James Jamerson. It, it's the kind of rhythm section where, you could, as a guitarist, you could lean back and there's this pillow to, to hold you up and make you sound good. And in the cars, which is one of the wider bands that's ever come down the pipe, it did not have, it was eighth noting. It didn't make your backbone slip. It didn't have that slight delay on the downbeat like soulful guys do. And so when I was able to play with Freedoms, I, I really felt that. And it, it just, that's the kind of thing that makes anything you do sound better. Like Bill and Charlie, one of those rhythm sections. And I thought Stu Cook and Doug Clifford were.
0: Oh, incredible. So but can you imagine if they'd been on CBS records? No. no. You get what you deserve if you're going to make it. It's on the road to make it. Fantasy was fucking perfect for them, regardless of what the aftermath. Actually, it worked. <laughs> it, yeah, it took, right, until it didn't work. But, I mean, what you just said is true, and I'm glad you had the experience with the other things, but the cars were, were perfect for the fucking times, man. Think of the attitude of people's shoulders, there was no back, there was no backbeat to it, man. No, just a lot of padding. Yeah, that's right. That was the times. No, I, I hear you, and I'm I'm so
1: blessed, and I I am so grateful for that. You can't put a bunch of details into a computer and say, how am I going to capture the zeitgeist? You can't. You know what? Otherwise, we know every record would be a hit, every band would be a smash. So for it to happen is like a miracle from God. We know that, except for one in ten million. You know, it's just doesn't happen. And, I, and I'm proud of the music. I'm just saying that the Creedence thing had a little bit more R&B and Met Soul thing coming into it. It was a little bit more of a groove shuffle, groove kind of vibe, you know. I, for guitar players, a lot of fun.
0: That's- yeah, no, right. But then he was blessed that he looked like Don Haggerty's son with the, <laughs> and he comes out looking like born again Christian guy who's chopping wood for the afternoon. And it all works for America, man, you know, and the world, because I mean, that those records were, the ultimate pop records.
1: They were, they were all made between 68 and 71. Amazing. Their whole output was in such a short time. So compressed. Yeah. If you look, it's unbelievable. I think like three albums in in one year, 69, there's like Green River, Bayou Country, and Willie and the Poor Boys. One year. You know what I mean? One freaking year. Yeah. Uh, He worked hard.
0: I mean, I always questioned to start with, the quality of Denon of Crosby Stores meshing up. You know, I, can't, I don't want to watch Laurel Canyon. I don't, you know, I mean, I can't go there where there was nothing more real about you than what you, the Hollies were just as real.
1: Of course they were, and just wearing jeans and beads and bells doesn't mean you weren't trying to sell a million records. Yeah, no,
0: right, Exactly. But for a long time, that was the message. Oh, they're they're for the people and by the people. No, they're fucking not. You can't take Salford out of a Manchester kid. And I have a a great DVD, which is The Hollies Story, because I love The Hollies, man. Me too. You know, I mean, there's even one that is often forgotten, but we tried to get Stephen to play it often when I was with his underground garage, and he really didn't like it. The 1978 record where Graham went back to help the lads out, and they cut Stop in the Name of Love. Oh. It's lovely, because they... They, d- they do one vocal slide in it that is just fucking miraculous, right? I, I mean, they just make it their own by yeah. this one um, move that is... The Hallows are an unbelievable band. Yeah. Un-
1: un- and was- Tony Hicks, man. I was going to oh. say, as a guitarist and someone who's tried to make a career out of creating hooks and cool parts to make arrangements and make a song, make that transition from a, a demo cassette to a great record, and uh, which is two very different things, as you know. Yeah. And, and Tony Hicks, to me, is so underappreciated in that way. They, no one talks about him. To me, he's up there with George Harrison, at least.
0: And how? And then some. And then some. But, of you had the power of the vocals yeah. d- dominate. And you would miss his ability, his tastefulness, his choices. And also, a lovely fucker, man. He was a great guy. Graham Goldman, let's not forget the songs. Wow. It was, it was great. But there was a thing. They had managers from hell. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I
1: really, it's funny. I, I'm such a student of that stuff, and I really don't know. I mean, I know Manchester, Twisted Wheel, blah, 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 but I mean, they really don't know much about their management or, or that. Like, you know about the apples and Jeffrey and Chandler and Mike Jeffries, but
0: I don't know about the Harleys. So and- they had agents, Harvey Lisberg and I've forgotten the other guy's name right now, Charles somebody. or the other. Anyway, but they were sort of like a premier talent of Manchester. Right. They owned Freddie and the Dreamers, Dave Berry, and all this stuff. So you probably would have got those Manchurian versions, the same stories that Irving Azov gave you. And that can deplete the act. So the act doesn't really, its voice is stifled because it's with an agent who's done this and done that and so on and so forth. The Hollies had a manager called Robin Britton. And when I saw... Crosby, Stills, and Nash here in Vancouver about 12, 13 years ago, I said to Graham, what happened to uh, Robin? He went, drank himself, you know. And also, he came from that Brian Epstein School of Management where if you were an inheritance and you you were the black sheep of a family and you had a briefcase and a paisley scarf, you became a manager. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Right? You know. Yeah. And they did rub a waste with the man. They didn't necessarily have any skills. They might yeah. have had might have had good intentions. And then also the record companies have always, you know, the luck of the draw, I mean the kinks on Pie Records didn't help.
1: Explain this one to me, Andrew, okay? I can understand it with managers. Explain Dave Clark to me where Mike Smith I love Smith, Dave Clark. I love I, Dave Clark. I, I, fair enough. But how does Mike Smith, who was the other face of the band and pulled that train live, how does he end up a poor man, and that those guys were on salary to Dave. How did he know that at 20 years? How did he figure out to license his masters and put his band on? How the hell did he know that stuff?
0: Street smart, man. He was also born three days apart from you. I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about ones that I've experienced through business. I don't care if Keith Richards is in the Rolling Stones. He's in Keith Richards. Alan Klein and Jerry Brandt, going back to Jerry Brandt, he said, Alan promised me that if I brought him Sam Cooke, we would be partners. Now, years later said, but Alan is never going to have a partner.
1: Yeah, he could promise anything.
0: Yeah, I, I went to Dave Clark about four or five years ago. He's amazing. He has these three muse houses put together behind Marble Arch. He, moved, he sold Kirsten Street, right? And I'm afraid because he's never... Done me good nor hurt me. I take him the way that he is. You know, I like it when. Let's see, I'm 76. No, but he was so when we, we've just turned 70. And he's a little, and at five o'clock we're having tea, and he says, "You like you're like this because he has an inference to it." He said, "You wouldn't like a glass of wine." Like he said, "I've just discovered in the last year few years that I like a glass of wine." I was like, "Yeah, okay, I believe him too." No, I know. Yeah, but okay. Dave Barr actually said to me that day. Never had a problem with the band ever. Never, they're, they're, yeah. And, yeah. And, and he's got an old 1960s office desk clamped with paperwork. Fuck computers. No one's getting near his stuff. Whatever yeah. he's got, he kept that. He doesn't owe any. Um, Mike Smith is a different issue because I don't know, but I do know that maybe Mike Smith was the cost for Dave Clark feeding the system. Fair enough. Collateral damage. Okay. Yeah, Dave Clark was a shopkeeper. His mother didn't sell cosmetics like mix or, you know, it's a middle-class, lower-class difference. And they shat all over him, man. He was a fucking joke, as well he should be. Because if my idea of hell is listening to his version of Marv Johnson's, you've got what it takes. Say no more. Right, Dave? But anyway, you you, you would love this. Part. He's got three muse houses, which he's put together behind Marvel Arch. And in London, he's got them all heated and the pavements outside heated. So that he can have tropical plants in the middle of fucking February, and I'm going. I don't fucking believe this bachelor boy. And hey, he uh, did you have that? You know, that musically did time. Did you ever hear that? I, I've heard of it. I I never saw it. Where he got Laurence Olivier in it every night by having him on a hologram.
1: Do you Do know it? what his The house sounds like. Do you know that scene in Help where they walk into four doors on the street? And the old ladies are standing. and saying, we should say hi. We should wave. And they expect it, don't they? And they walk in four doors and it's all one big apartment.
0: That's right. Yeah. But he can walk around his house barefoot in February. The palm trees are all growing and things like that. And you go, so smart, tacky. But anyway, the thing I went to see him about he was- He so smart. Unbelievable. Present. Yeah. To do and he him. didn't even have a manager. All he did was hire the press agent we all had called Leslie Perrin.
1: How the hell does he know he figured out- he played The Sullivan Show more time than anybody's.
0: Yeah, and as you know, as I said in my books, the first 18 months, 14 months of The Rolling Stones, if, we, if the Beatles looked over their shoulders, they didn't see The Rolling Stones. They saw The Dave Clark Five and Herman's Hermits. And boy, did he fucking work epic records. The people i met who I knew who were in promotion there, Fred Frank people, yeah. and people like that. He, and somebody who the daughter of Leslie Perrin had said to me, by the way, Andrew, uh, be careful when he opens the door. And I said, why? He said he had a lot of face work. <laughs> I, I like the one. eyebrows. Yeah, Well, right. He said, which, you know, which which it didn't really work. Well, she's wrong. He's actually a very good looking geezer. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Know, but he still is. I mean, you know, it he, he wasn't the Phantom of the Opera. Did, did people who have not got, are not going to have the best words for him will go to places like that.
1: I just go by the records. Bobby Graham was a great drummer. Yes, he was. And there's records of there's fabulous records. And I have these talks. People are into this subgenre they call power pop, which I, and if I'm going to even acknowledge that such a thing exists, I have to say that there's song, any way you want it stomping massive record. Yeah. If that isn't power pop, then I don't really understand
0: what the genre means. I went to see him. I really—I was doing a book on impresarios, and in the sixties, I used to design for Alan Klein twelve pages of advertising, so he had more fucking advertising than anybody else in that. And we'd put the Dave Clark Five in. So I wanted to know what the connection really was, because then you could get away with this, like Fred Lewis saying he managed the J. R. Band, and Dave told me he said I had nothing to do with Alan. He says, "What am I going to do? Stop a stupid advertisement?" Like he said, Walter Dean, who was the counsel. At CBS, Dave needed some accounting advice, so right. he he sent him to Alan, who wasn't even an accountant, and he he did work for him for twenty five hundred dollars, and then Alan came to him and said, "Hey, look, I can get you this deal, so and so and so, two two and a half million dollars, whatever the fuck it was for America, because you know Dave owned his own masters, right? Right? And um, he said, Alan, no thanks. And Alan said, Why not? Why not? Dave was three days apart from him. Said. Alan, I like to sleep at night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I think
1: is great. Let me ask you this. Why didn't, the, why didn't your boys warn the boys on, in, in Apple to run the other direction?
0: I don't know. I'm not a party to any of that. I only know what I've been told, and I don't believe what I've been told. John Lennon was no fool. But then again, when you fall in love, you fall in love. And there is no doubt that he fell in love with Alan. Right? Yeah, yeah. Alan did his homework. Exactly. And he knew which ones wrote it. That's the only service that Giorgio Gamelski did to mankind. He told me the story that he walked in there and Alan was having people test him. You know, and knowing, see, the great thing about Alan was once you've met him, everything you need to know about Donald Trump. Yeah,
1: that's, yeah. It's just amazing that a person could just lie so easily or promise so easily and have no intention whatsoever. Of honoring it, just like
0: a dog farts and they speak. It's a... it's when that beast works. That's what they become. You know. Now, when you went to Mutt Lang, it was it the beginning of the end because after that you go door to door.
1: Yeah, yeah, we made that last record. I'll tell you what happened. We did the first four with Roy Baker and it was great. And uh, I would have continued. Someone in the band thought that it might be interesting after having done all of our records with one person to try someone different. And we met with different producers and uh, ended up going with Mutt. So we went back to England and we did it. At the old Morgan Studios in uh, Wilsden, which is now what's called Battery, and the uh, Zomba South Africans owned it. Right. And so we made that record. Took the better part of a year to make the record, which,
0: you know. He drove from the middle of town to fucking Morgan Battery every day. From a house on Fulham Road.
1: Lionel Bart's old house. Still had the one-way mirrors, still had the minstrel gallery. Still had the sunbeds in a cabana in the middle of London oh, and a pool. Dave Clark eats your heart out. Right. I'm no. telling you what, mom. They rolled out the red carpet for this band. I don't know what it was, but they really- No, you
0: fucking doors open. Yeah. But
1: from the beginning, I, mean, they put us in, I told you about what they did before we'd even made the first record. Yeah. I can't say it was as much fun as making something else because it was painstaking. And I'll tell you what it was, because he had a, his goal, which is such a hard thing to achieve- and it's so contradictory, oxymoronic. He wanted something to sound spontaneous, <laughs> but perfect. Oh God. Okay. He wanted it to sound perfect, but just like you just grabbed the guitar off the stand and played it in one go. So that's a hard thing to achieve. It's almost like an acting job.
0: Yeah, man. It sounds to me a little bit more like Roy Thomas Baker knew what he wanted. Ma, whoever his name is, Lange, knew what it was when he finally heard it.
1: That's a, I think that's a very good way of putting it. Because, well, Roy knew what he wanted. He wanted us. Yeah. And, and that is the perfect way to put it. Because I, I remember working on a solo on that record with Mutt. And he was driving me crazy. I honestly think I did something as good as I could possibly do within my ability and to go, oh, man, shame about that one. Let's, one more. Oh, And so oh. I was just getting a that up. And he was like, I was tuning after every take. And I finally, you Mutt, you tune and I can't. I gave him the fucking guitar. So finally, I, I'm... I did solos I was really happy with. He goes, could you try one like David Gilmore? I said, how about if I try one like Elliot Easton?
0: Oh, great. Yeah.
1: You know what I mean? He wants to work with us because we've obviously got something that he thinks of value. And he's telling me to play like someone else. I said, it got stupid. He heard things that I don't know that if they were there or not. For instance, you know, the old Lynn drum machine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, was, he had five or six AMS digital delay machines stacked on top of each other moving the hi-hat and snare drum back and forth a millisecond saying, oh man, pity about that drum machine. It's off and it's not timed. It's not, it's off. Like, what the fuck are you talking about?
0: See, I wasn't even there, but I remember hearing stories about how Arif Marden and his son, when they were obviously too full of themselves, right? You know, I mean, it wasn't Atlantic in 1954 anymore. When they would be measuring those milli things between the machines and, and making the BGs wait for three days, might've been worth it. But then again, as only Barry is with us, yeah. I mean, there, there is a point where, okay, my never mind who gets served in the time. My instinct is still that people sometimes will take over more than they have to yeah. to keep yeah. to, to get control.
1: So you know what happened. So the last record, that door to door record, yeah, with the a knee jerk reaction to the whole experience. We talked about it and did not want to go through that again. And there was a tough time in the band. And instead of taking a hiatus and just taking a break from each other, somebody thought it would be a good idea to just make a quicker, cheaper record. Uh So we went went into Electric Lady, and for the first time, we made a record of tunes that were rejected for all the other records. Oh, that's great. That was the end of the band. Yeah. The The end.
0: Yeah. You had a sort of similar arc and other psychic similarities to the Smiths. Really? No, that didn't resonate with you.
1: (laughs) I like Johnny Marr, and I love How Soon Is Now. I think that's one of the great records. No, I don't know if it's – no, I just don't know
0: their story. No, No, it's just on the time factor. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't know the – I know the ins and outs of their story, mainly because Morrissey keeps insisting on telling everybody about it. But the arc, what interests me – okay, with your band and – that period, with less less them as a band, Johnny. Mara, a yes.
1: I don't care if he was a Smiths. So yeah. No, I don't like. I'm, we we didn't really know of them till how soon is now. Well, yeah. Really
0: yeah, but he, well, what I'm saying is that when is that the lifespan?
1: Oh, it's a good question. Is there a natural lifespan to a band where you reach a point of diminishing returns?
0: The eighties signified. I mean, I, I can use both you and the Smiths. As an example of how long before it was kill time, as opposed to in the case of the Beatles, it was over by 1966. Yeah, live. Yeah, in yeah. terms of the that particular carriage, and in terms of the Rolling Stones, it's not over. You know, I mean, as a live entity, as an entity. I mean, even then, when okay, David Bowie's lucky that he just kept getting rid of en- getting rid of anybody. He said it like, but when I'm reading this book by um, Dylan Jones, oh boy, man, you know, this is like a fucking Shakespearean play. Yeah. I've only been with David Bowie two times. One, I delivered against Decker's wishes, the four track of Marion Faith and singing as tears go by, because I think he was going to go on Midnight Special and do as tears go by with Marion Faith and dressed as a nun. So I gave him the backing track of that. And the other time I had an office in the Brill Building and he got into the elevator with me. And I didn't know it was him. Until he moved away from the back of the elevator to get out, and just said hello, Andrew, on his floor, because he had that thing that he'll just disappear on you. man.
1: he didn't even want to start a conversation, did he? He just no, as to- he left
0: the elevator, and that's fine because I wouldn't have known how to continue it. <laughs> Fair enough, you know. And so he, let's say, he gauged that, and we gauged what's you know, you you gauge that when you're in that particular club, you know when those moments are. Let me ask you, because it, did, it just occurred to me, how did Ben, or did was there anything for him to cope with, having been a lead singer in a band, and then coming in with all of you and learning the, the bass, being the bass player, whatever it was, or was that just part of the adventure?
1: It was worse than that. Oh. Rick and Ben had been struggling together to try to make it in the music business since 1968. Okay, They put out a record on ABC Dunhill, I think, called Milkwood. It was, it was a, like an acoustic deal called Milkwood, and it didn't make it. They'd been struggling for a long time. Now, those guys, Rick was nine years older than me, and the Cars was going to be a couple of guys in the band's last attempt. If the Cars didn't happen, a few guys in this band were going to walk away and find something else to do. So anyway, so they've been together since sixty eight. We finally got signed in 77 after all this, I won't go through the, this incredible convoluted history of them together, but they starved together and lived in each other's pockets for 10 years before we got signed. And when Elliot Roberts, this brings things full circle, when Elliot Roberts, man, came in to manage the band, I quickly picked up on the fact that, again, Keyman, his focus was singer-songwriter's. He even told us a story of how he engineered Neil Young quitting Buffalo Springfield to get him out of that band and as a solo artist. And so what happened with the cars is that he started grooming Rick as a solo artist. And what started to happen was all the interview requests and things like that were coming in were for Rick. And they'd been partners for over 10 years. Now, I didn't care because I know what a game the music business is, and I knew that if any one member of the band became famous, it would pull the whole band up. And so I was happy to see anybody get interviews. But Ben was like really mortally hurt by the whole thing and started isolating. And it got to the point where we were flying to gigs and he got his own bus. And we only saw him backstage before the show. So I know he didn't mean to open a can of worm, but. It's bigger than you think. It was No, de- I,
0: it's not a question of that. It's a question of, it's obvious. Only an idiot or a, a blessed idiot or Boston for Dummies or whatever you want to call it can <laughs> float through that kind of mission gas without, you know. If you know their history, you can see even how much more painful that would have been. We also know now, as we reach the autumn of our years, so to speak, that it can make you sick. Yeah. That there is a cost that when you're invincible that you don't even you, you always got the phone booths to get in and me, Christopher Reeves, dealer, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. come out. There is a cost. I mean, what you described to me when you said about the separate van reminds me of Brian Jones. Uh, first thing I wanted to do, not that I followed that much, but I wanted to know what sign he was right. You know, because I like to check the list of if, is everybody behaving. That Ty Cobb was born the same day as you, December eighteenth. Yeah, did not know that. Well I do, okay, right. Wow, some interesting company. You certainly are, dear Alan Klein. You know, <laughs> and Klein too. Oh yes, Alan Klein. And I know Bobby Keyes, Same day, same yeah, year. Yeah, there is the un- there there is the underbelly, and he's a member of that part of it. And no, but the surprising one when you think about it, no, it's not. It's just because of the chassis that God gave him. Is Brad Pitt? Oh, wow. Okay, but he's a relentless worker. Did you have contact with your lead singer towards the end?
1: With Rick? Yeah, I I did. Some nice healing happened at the Hall of Fame and the week leading up to it where we rehearsed and spent time with each other all week. Uh And I'm happy to say that when he asked, I wasn't left with that feeling of there was a bunch of stuff I wish I could have said or there were some things I would have liked to get off my chest or anything like that. I really really happy to say that because I carried a lot of stuff around with me for a long time yes. and we really put a lot of that to rest, getting together and doing that week. And it was very healing. Good. Good. Cause you know, that opportunity does not come around <laughs> too, too often. No, it doesn't. And and when we met, I was probably in the thick of my misery because it was when the band was at its highest.
0: Yeah, exactly. But you see, going back to that moment, then when I did meet, you know, how we, we keep moving Polaroids in our life of, uh, what turn out to be mean moments that we're gonna learn something from. Yeah. Okay, I had the same thing with Ellie He had me pick him up in Malibu, and then we drove to the airport. He was getting on a plane to go and see Joni Mitchell in Australia. And all he had was a brown paper bag. And I admired that. You know I mean I went I knew my life would never be it's just not going to be that simple. But I then again now I know that life is not that simple. It's it's all put together. And have we um, learnt to separate that part of it to what is now, and embrace the two of them as good friends? Here we are, and, and I'm and I'm glad of it. I thank you, Elia. Thank you mucho for listening to this week's episode second part with Mr. Elliot Easton here on Sounds and Vision. By now, you should know where to go to. You should know that the producer is Craig Snyder. You should know that the production and audio design is by Michael Donaldson. More episodes of what we do are available on soundsandvision.net where you can subscribe to this pod chat in your favorite pod chat feed you can reach me on Instagram and Twitter, you can guess <laughs> but it is basically at nuke Olden Sounds and Vision is a production of Because Entertainment the distribution is out on the Alec Baldwin film lot, but we're here serving you as best we can in these less than Walt Disney times, we'll see you next week